Genesis chapter 9, and you'll find that on page 801 in that Red Pew Bible. Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 1 and going through to the end of the chapter. Thanks, Mercy. Come on down. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Israel cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. 
It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left his descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Um, Father in heaven, thank you so much for this chance to get together today and to, um, uh, to hear from your word. Uh, Lord, we want to just pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to um, penetrate our minds and our hearts and help us to understand more clearly who you are and what your purpose is and how it is that you act in our world, that we would respond rightly to you. And uh, we pray also for our children at, at the uh, Kids Church and ask that you would be um, firmly establishing them in the, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they would live lives that are worthy of you. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Not everyone who belongs to the church is a Christian. Now, I, I learned this lesson the hard way in the uh, first church that I served in after uh, mostly finishing my, st my studies. Uh, the, the gospel had not been preached in that church for um, almost two decades and uh, that was clear from what other uh, leaders had told us. And it was also clear from the spiritual state of the congregation. Uh, many of the church members assumed that they were right with God, that they would be going to heaven when they died, on the basis of their, their good deeds. And so, uh, as a young minister in my late 20s, I found that I kept on getting myself into trouble. For, um, for just saying things that the Bible says and for just saying things that um, I assumed that all Christians believed and found that I was wrong. Uh, there were um, church members, even church leaders, uh, elders in the church who were offended by uh, things which were just basic to the gospel. And yet... Um, that, that was difficult, actually. But uh, uh, despite that, there were others who were also very encouraged. Uh, some of the older members of the church had um, a kind of like a kernel of, of Christian faith. They, they had um, heard the gospel and believed uh, way back in the 1959 Billy Graham Crusades. But they'd gone to a church that wasn't teaching the Bible. And so uh, their... Their faith was, um, they, they didn't grow as Christians. They, they trusted, they had a simple trust in Jesus, but they just, just didn't, hadn't grown in all of that time. Uh, there were others during our time there and just prior to us coming as well who, uh, who did grasp the gospel. They grasped the gospel for the first time in their lives and uh, God kindly brought some other people into that church who were gospel-centered people. But um, in that context, uh, as the gospel was being preached, we found that the opposition to the gospel uh, grew. 
and it, it grew quite strongly. And as it grew, it became clear that there was a, um, there was a church, but within that, ch that visible church, that there was a, there was a real church. There were, you see, the invisible church, um, the, the, the visible church is something which you can see. You can, you can see the faces, you can count the numbers, you can, you can look at the church role. That's the, the visible church, the tangible church, but the invisible church, well, that's not so easily counted because that's got to do with the heart, not just externals, that's got to do with the heart. That's the, the, those who actually do put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and have committed their lives to God. Now, often when the gospel is opposed within the church, the person who's teaching the gospel, be it the pastor or be it other congregation members who are sharing the gospel, uh, that person is often deemed to be uh, at fault. Um, and, and, you know, I've heard the comments, um, people are leaving the church and it's all your fault. Um, we don't come to church to hear about Jesus. We don't need the Bible in church. We've all got our own Bibles. We can read them at home if we want to. We were much happier before you came. <laughs> and so on. I've heard them all. You see, the invisible church is not the same as the visible church, is it? And this is something which the Apostle Paul understood through painful experience, uh, not just within the church itself, but within uh, his own community, the, uh, the people of, of Israel, the Jews. Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Jew who proclaimed the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Now, when you think about it, for a Jew to be proclaiming the Jewish Messiah... That's kind of about as Jewish as you can get, isn't it? That's a very, very Jewish message because it's saying that the, the long-awaited hope of the Old Testament has now arrived, that all of the prophecies have been fulfilled, that God's righteousness has been revealed on the cross of Jesus. You see, the gospel of Jesus was not a new innovation. It is a very, very, it is a profoundly Jewish message. So, if that is the case, why is it that the majority of Jews did not embrace the gospel in Paul's day? I mean, if it was true, if the gospel was this, truly this, the the, the the ultimate Jewish message, then surely um, Jews would be accepting it. But why would so many Jews be rejecting it if it was actually the true Jewish message? And what about Paul himself? Hadn't Paul abandoned his own people? Hadn't he abandoned the Jews? I mean, who's he preaching to? He's preaching mostly to the Gentiles. And he's and he's, un he's downplaying the law of Moses. Now, in Romans chapter 9, Paul addresses some of these issues and, and more. And if you open up your Bibles at Romans 9, 
He starts in verses 1 through to 5 with a defence of his attitude towards his own people. Verse 1, he says, I speak the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Uh, You know, uh, we Christians don't need to swear oaths, do we? Um, When we're saying something... We don't have to say to people, oh, by the way, what I'm actually saying here is true. <laughs> uh, we don't have to kind of do that, do we? Because we should always speak the truth. You know, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Uh, we don't say, look, at, on, on this occasion I'm speaking the truth as opposed to on other occasions. Uh, we don't need to do that. But Paul here does do that. Why is it that Paul has to declare, I am not lying? Why is it that he has to... Um, say that the Holy Spirit is his witness. Well, I I take it it's because he's defending himself against an accusation, against a charge which uh, he has heard being levelled against him. And that, that is the charge that he doesn't love and he doesn't respect the Jews. But that's not true. Uh, He has great sorrow. He has unceasing anguish in his heart for them and with good reason i mean god has blessed the jews with uh, with every opportunity to know god they've been adopted as his sons they are heirs of his kingdom uh, god paul says has given the jews his visible glory tangible expressions of his presence amongst them uh, he's given them the covenants, the covenants with, with Abraham, the covenants with Moses. He's given them the law. He's given them the temple with its priests and its atoning sacrifices. He's even given them his own son, uh, the Lord Jesus, who is God, says Paul. One of the few times in the New Testament where Paul explicitly states that Jesus is God He has his descendancy from Israel and yet it is he whom they have rejected. And by rejecting God's son, Paul is in anguish because they've rejected God's salvation. See, Paul doesn't despise them. Far from it. I wonder, uh, is there anyone who you could think of that you would willingly go to hell for? You know, if you believe in hell, then that is not a trade that you would commit yourself to in any way lightly. Paul would. This is what he says. He says, if, if, if I could, I would be accursed. I would be cut off from Christ uh, if that meant that my fellow Jews would, would go to heaven. That is a profound expression of his love for them very powerful statement so he's committed to his own people um, unquestionably so and so the question therefore is if the jews are god's chosen people then why is it that so few of them have embraced the gospel does this mean that, that paul's message has somehow failed to to draw in the jews is there something faulty about the gospel Uh, of God's word in verses 6 through to 13 Paul's broad answer to that 
is that the Old Testament does not lead us to expect that all of the descendants of Abraham would embrace the gospel. It's not an Old Testament expectation that that would take place. And there's two reasons for that. Uh, Firstly, just as we may talk about the church within the church, uh, there was always an Israel within Israel. Uh, Verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed, says Paul, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now, Abraham's wife, um, Sarah, was barren and uh, they were both getting on in years. They were both, both senior citizens. They were elderly and yet God had promised that he was going to give them a son. And at, that, at their age, that was kind of like humanly impossible. So what did Abraham do? Well, he decided, I'm, going to, no, I'm not going to wait around much longer. I'm going to take things into my own hands. And uh, so he decided that he would um, lie with uh, Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. And through Hagar, um, through Abraham's own efforts in that regard... Uh, was produced the the son Ishmael. Um, But that wasn't God's plan. That wasn't the point of the promise. Abraham had to trust that God would deliver on a promise which was humanly impossible. And so it was the humanly impossible birth of his son Isaac through Sarah that really counted. Um, So he had, amongst other children, he had Ishmael and Isaac. Were both of them sons of Abraham? Yeah, they were, absolutely. But only one of them was the son of the promise. Uh, Ishmael represents our own efforts to, uh, to gain God's blessing. Uh, Paul makes that point in Galatians chapter 4, whereas Isaac represents trusting in the promises of God. So, are all of Abraham's descendants God's people? Um, No. Um, Ishmael was not included in the promise. Only Isaac was. It's only those who trust in God's promises. It doesn't depend on physical descendancy. Now, secondly, God actually chooses, that is, he elects some to be his people and not others. And this is something which we see in Isaac's children. Take a look at verse 10. Not only that, says Paul, but Rebekah's children, that's Isaac's wife, uh, Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, Isaac had, had two sons by the, one, by the same woman, by his wife, Rebekah. The two sons are Jacob and Esau. 
And Paul emphasises here that they were twins. So they've got the same mum and the same dad. They're born at the same time. They have the same family, the same life experience, exactly the same, almost exactly the same time of birth. But before they were born, God had decided that he was going to favour one of them over the other. Now, by the way, the two pronouncements about the brothers here in these verses, they refer to their descendants. So God had decided that um, uh, the older would serve the younger. That means that Esau would serve Jacob. Uh, Esau himself was never a servant of Jacob, but his descendants were, a descend were servants of Jacob's descendants. Um, Esau's descendants were the Edomites. Uh, Jacob's descendants were Israel. And uh, at various times in history, the Edomites were subject to the Israelites. And so we see God's, uh, what God is saying here is actually being fulfilled uh, through their descendants. Uh, there's that interesting verse about God's hatred um, towards Esau. It's kind of something that sort of leaps off the page, doesn't it? It doesn't uh, gel very well with us. Uh, that is a quote from Malachi chapter 1. And in Malachi chapter 1, it refers to uh, God's judgment on Esau's descendants, the Edomites, in response to their sin against Israel. But we can see God's electing choice here, that he's chosen Jacob and his descendants. He has not chosen Esau and his descendants. Paul's point here is the reason for this is that the reason why not, Israel, not all of Israel is Israel uh, is because of God's choice. Um, God chooses some of them, some people, to be Abraham's descendants. Uh, rather, God chooses some of Abraham's descendants to belong to his people and others not to belong. Now, how does God make that choice? Uh, is it based on how good people are? Well, no. Um, Esau and Jacob kind of prove that point, don't they? Because when, when did God say that the younger would serve the older? Um, was it after they'd been born and God had seen their character and said that, no, actually Jacob's a much better person than Esau? No, it wasn't. When was it? It was before they were born, before either of them had the opportunity to express their character to do good or to do evil. Um, some people like to explain this away by uh, saying that, no, actually God foreknew um, in advance that Jacob would be of better character than Esau and that's why God made that um, elected Jacob and not Esau. But that's not the case either. Was Jacob of better character than Esau? No. They were both lousy. <laughs> they were both... And in fact, uh, in verse 13, the point is that it's actually got nothing to do with good works. It's all about God electing for his own reasons. Now, someone might ask, well, does this mean that God is therefore unjust? I mean, he, if he chooses only some people and he doesn't choose everybody, 
If he's going to choose some people, why doesn't he choose everybody? God, he is unjust. It's just not fair. Now, let me ask you this. When someone has done wrong, do they ask the judge for justice or mercy? We've all sinned against God. We all inherit the sinful nature of, of Adam. We're all rebels against God. We want to live our lives our way and not God's way. We all deserve God's judgment. And so, knowing that that is true of you, knowing your own sin, um, do you ask God for justice upon you? Or do you ask him for mercy? I want mercy, don't you? Because justice means I'll be punished. That's what I deserve. I want mercy. Verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You see, mercy by its very... Um, by by its very nature, by, by definition, is really at the discretion of the one who has, been, uh, who has been wronged, who has been sinned against. And what this means is that because we are sinners, we are deserving of God's wrath, we, we can't criticise God for, for judging. We can't criticise God for, for punishing but we can thank him uh, when he is merciful. Uh, we can thank him that he's merciful in choosing even some. That's mercy. Part of our problem is that we, we tend to think that it's all about us. But it's actually all about God and God's, God's glory. And God actually knows what he's doing too, by the way. God has a purpose in choosing some and not choosing others. Uh, verse 16. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, God chose Israel. Um, he didn't choose Pharaoh to be part of his people, did he? Um, in fact, um, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's interesting, though, when you look at Exodus, the various verses on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Some say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Some say that Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And most of them say that Pharaoh's heart was just hardened. <laughs> Uh, Pharaoh is a sinner like you and me, um, and uh, he's personally accountable for his sin, um, but uh, God didn't actually change his heart to be um, flexible and uh, soft towards God. In fact, his uh, judgment was already placed on him as God hardened his heart even further. So the hardness of Pharaoh's heart was important in God's plan and purpose because it meant that Israel would not escape Egypt until 
God had brought great plagues upon that land, uh, such that um, uh, they were so miraculous and so devastating that the Gentile nations would get to hear about what the God of Israel had done. And so we saw that in Joshua when uh, the Israelites crossed over the Jordan River and all of the other nations on the other side of the Jordan, they were scared stiff, weren't they? Because they had heard of the greatness of Yahweh in terms of the plagues upon Egypt and the escape from uh, across the Red Sea. And so God, you, God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order that God's greatness would become more widely known amongst Gentile nations. One of the interesting things here is that when we um, come to Romans 11 in, in, the, in um, a couple of weeks' time, uh, we'll see that um, God also hardened the hearts of Jews uh, with a purpose. And that is so that uh, when the gospel was preached, that the opposition to the gospel um, by the Jews would actually mean that the, uh, the gospel would spread out from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria into all of the world as uh, the Jews persecuted Christians. Uh, Christians spread out the Christian diaspora. And when they did so, they took the gospel with them into areas where uh, lots of Gentiles lived and were able to share the gospel with their Gentile neighbours. Um, we see this also uh, in respect to um, Paul and his ministry in, um, throughout Asia Minor and, and uh, in, in Greece and so on, that when he goes into a, a new town, where does he go first of all to preach the gospel? He goes to, to the Jews, doesn't he? He goes to the Jewish community, to the synagogue, and he preaches the gospel. Uh, but when the Jewish leadership of the synagogues reject the gospel and try to stone Paul and his colleagues and so on, what does he do then? He takes the gospel then to the, to the Gentiles. And so we see churches developing with many uh, Gentile believers so that God has hardened the hearts of the Jews so that the gospel actually goes to the Gentiles. And what we'll see in Romans 11 is that um, in doing that, uh, <clears throat> in time, uh, as the Jews see many Gentiles as Christians and the Gentiles are ministering to Jews, that there will be a gathering in of uh, Jews into the kingdom of God. But more of that in a couple of weeks' time. The point is that God hardens the hearts of people for the sake of his glory and for the sake of being able to act mercifully towards others. It is for our sake that God hardened Jewish hearts so that in time they will receive God's mercy through us. Now, someone might say, well, you know what? I still think this, this is unjust. Verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? Now, sometimes we, we like to tell God what he should be like. And we kind of like to tell God what he should do. Um, newsflash. Despite popular opinion, we are not God. He is. I mean, 
He actually created the universe. He made us. He made you. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. You're his handiwork. Uh, in verses 19 through to 21, uh, we are to, to God what clay is to a potter. If a, if a potter has a, a lump of clay, it's his or her choice what they do with it. Is that a fair comment? I mean, if the potter wants to mould that clay into a common household pot or, as they had in the first century, a, 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 a clay lamp, then guess what? That's up to him. He's the potter. And if he wants to turn that lump of clay and use it to create a, a beautiful, exquisite, uh, a valuable vase, then that's his choice too. He's the potter. God is God. He made us. The, 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 the lump of clay doesn't talk back to the potter and say, hey, what are you doing here? You know, what are you, you know, using me to, uh, to create this common pot? I want to be a vase. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's just sort this out. Uh, he's the potter, you're the clay. <laughs> God is God. We are his creation. So in verses 22 through to 24, if God chooses to harden the hearts of some, given that we're all sinners, given that we all deserve God's wrath, if God chooses to harden the hearts of some so that through that others will hear of his glory and receive mercy, then so be it. He is God. He knows what he's doing. And none of us deserve mercy. You can't deserve mercy by definition. Now, as I've mentioned, it seems that um, the background to this is that Paul and his message were being discredited. Uh, and, you know, so that uh, you can imagine uh, Jewish um, critics um, saying that. Uh, well, you know what, you can't really believe what Paul's saying because, you know, look at who it is who's believing in, in the gospel. It's those ignorant Gentiles. They don't know what they're talking about. It's, only, it's mostly ignorant Gentiles who are responding to this message about Jesus. Um, as for us Jews, most of, most of us Jews, we really know what we're talking about. We've rejected the message. So why would you believe Paul? Well, Paul's point here is that the fact that there are many Gentiles and only a few number of Jews coming into the kingdom, that is exactly the expectation of the Old Testament. That's what the Old Testament taught in verse 25 and 26. In verse 25, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my beloved one, who is not my beloved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Now what is Hosea saying? The Gentiles. That there are Gentiles whom God has called to be his people. There are Gentiles who are God's beloved. That there are Gentiles who are his sons. This is Old Testament. 
But what about the Jews? I mean, is it right to expect that as soon as the gospel was proclaimed that there would be this massive en masse response from the Jews and all the Jews would embrace Jesus? Is that the Old Testament expectation? Verse 27. Uh, mm, what if God, in verse 27 rather, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, that's the promise to Abraham, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. Now, Isaiah here is speaking in the context um, just prior to the Assyrian invasion and, and exile. But uh, what he's speaking here are, are, are truths which um, we see throughout the whole of most of the Old Testament. I mean, in Romans 11, we'll see that God does have a, a plan for the Jews for their salvation. But as we see here in Isaiah, that there has often been um, an Israel within Israel. A small, faithful, true Israel, trusting in the promises of God within the physical Israel, uh, trusting in themselves. Just like a church within the church. Now, why then is it like this? Paul here has explained, has explained the big picture from the point of view of God's election and his um, working throughout history. But there's also the, um, the flip side of that, and that's the question of human responsibility. And Paul wraps up this section by talking about a rock which causes people to stumble uh, upon. Verse 30. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, in that church that I spoke about earlier on, um, one of the elders was a, um, uh, a man by the name of Les. Uh, he was an older man. Uh, he had been uh, going to church, um, I think, most of his life. Uh, he really loved the church. He was there every Sunday. He was there at every elders' meetings. And he went around doing lots of visiting of people. And uh, Les tried to be a very good man. But he was not a Christian. He was an elder of the church, but he was not a Christian. Because he trusted in his own righteousness, not in Jesus. That's sad, isn't it? You know, in Paul's day, um, many of the Jews, they just could not stomach the gospel of Jesus. And that's just like religious people today. Because the gospel, by its very nature, assaults our pride. Uh, it, we don't like to be called sinners. And we like to think that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we can, we can be self-achievers. 
But the gospel says that we're actually unworthy sinners and that we are in need of a saviour. But if you think you're okay with God because you're good enough, then the, 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 the necessary implication of that is that you don't need a saviour if you're good enough. And if you don't need a saviour, then why, why do you need Jesus? You don't need Jesus, you've got yourself. And you stumble. Because we're told here that Jesus is, the, um, uh, is like a rock. A rock that's been placed there. And some people stumble over that rock. And uh, for others, Jesus is like the rock of ages cleft for me. That he is our hiding place. He is our refuge. He, he is our shelter uh, from the storm of God's judgment. And we can trust in him. For first century Jews, the word Gentile and the word sinner were synonymous, interchangeable. If you're a Gentile, you're a sinner. <laughs> and if you're a sinner, you'd be, well, you're like one of those Gentiles. All Gentiles were just unworthy sinners in the Jewish mindset. But you know what? Um, because of their self-righteousness, the gospel spread and as the gospel spread into the Gentile world's word, world, because of God's election and because of the Holy Spirit, there were in fact many Gentiles who were actually happy, willing to accept that definition of themselves. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we need a saviour. And so they put their faith in Christ who was a stone who for them became a shelter, safe stronghold from the judgment of God. As by the way did my friend Les. It was wonderful to spend time with Les, a guy trusted in his own righteousness and really just hadn't been taught. And uh, in sharing the gospel with Les and spending time with him, uh, to see him understand who Jesus is for the first time and transfer his trust. Transfer his trust away from himself, his religion, his good works and place it all on Jesus, the one whom God has given us as our shelter. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your kindness, for your mercy. And Lord, we don't, we don't understand all of your ways, but we trust that you are righteous, that you are not capricious, that you're not fickle, that you are consistent in all of your ways, and that what you do is right. Oh, Father, we don't want justice, we want mercy. And we just pray that that uh, uh, gospel of mercy would um, be flourishing in our hearts and that through us and through the ministry of your spirit would, would flow out into all of the world. Oh Lord, we ask you for that and help us, Lord God, to keep on resisting the temptation to be putting our trust in ourselves 
Help us always remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We thank you for that. Amen.